Welcome to Overthinking It Season 4, Episode 4, Game of Thrones. It's four, right, guys? Four? Four? Four. Four. Game of four Thrones. Four chains! <laughs> four chains! Uh, of Oathkeeper is the name of this episode. It is the, uh, the latest in uh, episode of uh, Game of Thrones, which is a television show on HBO. You are listening to this on the Overthinking It TV Recap Podcast, or you're watching it live on YouTube. Everybody watching it live is awesome. Yay! And everybody who is watching it on YouTube taped, you know, afterwards is also awesome. You're all awesome. Uh, so, yeah, so take a minute to subscribe now so that you don't, because you're going to be so overwhelmed by the depth of our insight and the thrill of this analysis, you may forget later. So just click that little button, and we'll wait. All right, we're done. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here to talk about an episode of Game of Thrones that has a lot of private conversations in it, a lot of uh, confidences, a lot of memories, a lot of people kind of going over their backstories, and some pretty interesting developments at the end of the episode that are new to a lot of us, uh, people who read the books, and as well as people who are watching the show. So I'll do our usual routine. We've got a full force panel tonight. The Night Watch has ridden in force beyond the wall. Uh, and so we have our full panel tonight, and I'll go around and introduce everybody and ask you, you know, what moment to you defines this, this episode? Where's the doorway into this episode? What, maybe what conversation uh, for you really connected with the themes of the episode that you want to talk about? So since we like alphabetical order here overthinking it, I will start with Ben Adams. Ben, how are you doing? Hey, Pete. I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty good. I haven't been uh, taken into the Ice Fortress by uh, the Mordor of uh, uh, Game of Thrones. I'm pretty excited. Oh, good, good, good. I'm glad. So yeah, no, tell us what what's your take on the app? What's the uh, what's the episode? What's the moment of the episode that really provides the doorway for you? I'd say, I'd say, uh, I'd say the Downton Abbey moment, like we usually talk about, like the sort of insignificant conversation that provides a lot of context. But I'm wondering if this episode isn't quite structured that way. I'm not sure. Prove me right or prove me wrong, Ben. What's what are your thoughts? Well, I, I was I was going to say roughly that that I think there's a couple ways in because I think this is one of those episodes where it's more moving chess pieces around and kind of reorienting us to a new a new situation for future episodes. I don't know if there's just one way in, but uh, one of the lines I liked was the, the new member of the Night's Watch who explained that the reason he was up there was that he figured he wouldn't have to suck up to any highborn, dot, 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 I guess I was wrong. Uh, kind of, you know, new boss, same as the old boss going on here that... You know, even though it's a it's a new situation, he he's kind of stuck in the same uh, the same pattern, and we see that repeated in a couple of different places. That you can throw out the the people at the top, or you can change the the roster of characters, but you get about the same result at the end. Uh, point of point of order. <laughs> sure. Yes. Uh, the chair uh, recognizes the gentleman from Rug on the Wall. <laughs> uh, uh, well, first of all, this is a, uh, a Congo, which is a Kenyan tapestry, and so no oh, one puts sorry. that on the floor. <laughs> um, so, uh, question, uh, and this is as the, actually, I, I'm really representing the uh, land of people who have not read the books and also can't tell everyone apart. Um, but is the is it, am I wrong in believing that new member of the Night's Watch is the... Um, uh, uh, Bolton infiltrator, the guy who cut off Jamie's hand, uh, and who has right. been sent to um, shore up the Bolton, uh, uh, the Bolton claim. He actually uh, and, is and a from the books, uh, Ryan. Ooh, that's He's interesting. He's a composite character, but yes, you're correct. But okay, so um, yeah, then okay. As as a person who just can't tell, all all y'all bearded men look alike. All right. <laughs> he has scars. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, so, right, so, and what is this character's name? Um, Locke. I think it's Locke here. Right, 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 because he's a man of, um, a man of faith rather than a man of science. Um, <laughs> Don't tell him what he can't do, Ryan. Right, exactly, and so, but one thing he can do and wants to do is find, uh, Bran, uh, Bran Stark, right, is the main thing that he wants to do, and I'm not saying that that, um, I think not that that um, invalidates kind of Ben's interpretation as a, as a weighty line, but it's also when read through that, it's also a kind of um, like a confidence, uh, a, a con man act as well of, of kind of bonding with, um, with Jon Snow and kind of getting his trust. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we see him appear in that private conversation uh, between um, 
between uh, what is it is between Jon Snow and um, and and Sam, I think, right? That about kind of finding uh, finding Bran on the other side of the wall. So I think that that's just another kind of qualification to that scene. And I wanted to ask it now, uh, bef- but because uh, again, I was like, wait, I think I recognize this guy, but he could just look like that guy, um, and so I just wanted to clarify <laughs> that. And I feel like Game of Thrones is full of people that say philosophically true things that do not mean them at the time that they say right. them. <laughs> They're just yeah. using them to get into the <laughs> get into uh, the, the the trust of the people they're planning on betraying a few episodes down the line. Well, speaking yeah, of things definitely. we do mean, welcome, Shayna. How are you doing? We're glad to see you. What's your? Uh... I'm doing well, Pete. Good. And thank you for inviting me to the. Uh, the the Sir Pounce uh, recap because uh, this episode is all about Sir Pounce, right? That's all we're talking about. The character. No, who... but uh, actually, Wait, is, I wanted is that to... the guy who cut off uh, Jamie Lannister's hand? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. He uh... actually is Sir Pounce a he or a she? I guess it's a Sir, so it has to be he, right? Okay. Anyway, we'll, yeah, we'll get back. Otherwise, it would be Lady <laughs> Pounce, and that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Though Pod well, can't really crazy. tell the difference. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I wanted to build off uh, Ben's point um, because Matt, my Downton Abbey moment was the moment with Carl, and I'm not just saying that because he's played by Byrne Gorman, who I always think is the guy um, from Downton Abbey, you know, the shifty guy uh, who's like a footman or something, kind of sneaky, but no, they're different people. Yes, Thomas, that's the yeah, but Byrne Gorman is not Thomas, he is... Um, another sneaky, shifty, kind of icky character who is Owen from Torchwood, so different person. Um, but anyway, uh, the moment that I wanted to point out was um, when he is up at Craster's Keep and everyone is um, apparently raping women to death. Yay. Um, but that's not the moment. The moment is when he is drinking out of the skull of, I guess it was Mormont, um, and he was talking about the highborn being brought low and how he himself, as a lowborn, is now sort of a legend or has been a legend. Um, and this was an episode where, well, it was called Oathkeeper, right? Um, and this was actually an episode where a lot of oaths were either being broken or they had been broken in the past episode or two, or there was um, a question of whether they would be broken. And um, a lot of those oaths were from lower-born people making oaths to higher-born people. So we had um, Carl and the other members of the Night's Watch, they, of course, broke their oath um, to Mormont and the other members of the Night's Watch. But then you have some other moments where the lowborn sort of, uh, they were justified in breaking their oaths, like the slaves and Marine, who I guess had sort of sworn an oath to be slaves, but, you know, now they're stabbing people in the back. Um, and it's interesting also how this was the episode uh, where even uh, book readers were shocked to see that the White Walkers have their own sort of hierarchy. We don't know if they're like lowborn or highborn. We don't know if they're even, I guess, born at all because they're sort of, they seem to be made from babies. But there is this one guy in charge um, which is just fascinating. No one who read the book had really seen this coming. So I think this episode mostly was about class, which of course is an issue you know, that is important in the whole show. Uh, but it did seem very salient in this particular episode. So uh, the, the leader of the, the, the others, or as they're called in the show, the White Walkers, is the one with the best manicure. Right. <laughs> because he has that he has the like the long nails that are filed into a triangular point at the end and that was i mean that was bitch and i thought you know is great it, manicure is it a spoiler to mention that there seemed to be some um well the, the synopsis on the hbo go website for this episode sort of revealed who the that um white walker leader was supposed to be um, is it a spoiler to say what the synopsis said? I mean, I think anything out in the world is fair game, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah have you seen this, guys? As long yeah, as yeah. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> Go on. 
No, no, I, th- I think you're good to you're good to go. But uh, c- cover your ears for the next thirty seconds if you don't want to hear about this. Well, we don't know if it's true. It could have been just some HBO intern who's like, "Oh, I need to come up with a name for this guy." So he just flips to a random page in a storm of swords and is like, "Oh, this guy's name seems cool." You know, we don't know if it's a real spoiler or not because George R. R. Martin hasn't made it canon yet. But um, in any case, the synopsis says that the leader of the White Walkers, who we saw make the baby into some sort of super baby, um, super ice zombie baby, um, was called the the Night's King, I believe. And uh, he was a figure in A Storm of Swords. Uh, Let's see, I found the page. um, Who uh, Nan had uh, talked to Bran about him. Um, Apparently he was this dude who was the 13th, of course that's a scary number, 13th, uh, leader of the Night's Watch all back in the day. And he broke an oath by uh, hooking up with some uh, apparently zombie woman north of the wall who I guess might have been a White Walker as well. Um, And the uh, the Starks actually had to ally with, who was it? The Wildlings to defeat this guy. Um, but old Nan says that um, she thinks that the Night's King was also a Stark and might have also been named Bran. So that's just a little point of mythology from the book that might blow Ryan's mind and maybe other people's <laughs> mind as well. So just See, that out there. People rant about spoilers. I love spoilers because I got that mind-blowing for free. I didn't have to read thousands of pages. That's awesome. I mean, it's not a spoiler, though, because... I mean, it's at this part of the TV show in the book. Like, it it happened at the same time. It's just we didn't have, even the book readers didn't have the information that this guy, the Night's King, and that guy in the TV show might be the same person, which is pretty friggin' cool. Um, I don't know what to make of it. Um, Does this, like, portend something for the future of Bran or the future of the show and book story as a whole? I don't know. You guys can make predictions. I'm not sure I'm ready to go there, but I think it's pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, did he look like an 80s movie villain to anyone else? Just with, like, <laughs> the, the, like, latex mask and, like, the fingers and, like, the... But, yeah, no, um, yeah, it's a totally huge departure. Really on-the-nose kind of supernatural, magical stuff that you don't really see a ton of in the show. And he seemed, like, really villainous, and here's the big bad guy. It's like... A little bit too Final Fantasy uh, for for what I expected from this. <laughs> like, Nor if you find Sephiroth, he kills. Wait, never mind. Spoilers. So. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> They, they they use... this, but is he the big bad guy? After seeing the guys in Craster's Keep, I'm like, yeah, I want this guy to go and kick their butts. Like, uh, like I, you know, it's it's. I think that it, it says something about the show where this thing that is terrifying in this way that kind of we associate with kind of almost cheesy villainry, um, like is like yes, th- like like I'm I'm happy that he's out there. I mean, I'm not happy that he's taking babies. Um, um, but, uh, you know, th- again, that baby would have been killed otherwise. And so if that baby gets to help kill the, you know, um, the Craster's Keep mutineers, then all for it. Um, I mean, the point babies. is, the, the point is, that like we're, the Angelina- we're, yeah, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, he's like the Angelina Jolie of the North. Yeah. <laughs> you want me on that white wall. You need me on that white wall. <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't think it's a spoiler because we would have heard about it already. But anyway, let's let's. Uh, well, I guess Ryan's had plenty of time to talk already. But do you want to add? You want to pick a <laughs> oh, moment? Oh sure. <laughs> and how? Um, I guess the one thing I'll add is I think um, another thing that I thought that this episode was about. I mean, in addition to being kind of a moving pieces on the chessboard episode, and it being about kind of you know variations on the theme of um, oath. Um, oath keeping. I feel like there were also themes of kind of being and becoming, of of transformation or or becoming something and and being something. And again, we saw this um, in you know the, I, I think that the really the last scene um, you know hammered this home with uh, you know what we close on is the transformation of the baby into an other or into a White Walker with the change in the eyes. Um, but that what's bookended is the very um, the the very first scene. Um, of the episode of uh, of both the um, or the first not the very first scene um, but the um, the scenes in Marine of the slaves becoming free um, and uh, Daenerys you know rising to the top 
of the pyramid. But interestingly, like the the scene that actually came in the middle that I felt was the kind of Downton Abbey scene that was connecting these um, t- other types of transformation or the, you know the, tr- the transformation of the mutineers into these kind of you know horrible, um, really like nasty villainous uh, figures was actually the um, the scene. Um, in in uh, in Tomlin's uh, uh, bedroom, um, and and with uh, with and when when Marjorie Terrell uh, sneaks in, and because something that she says to him is something to the effect of "We're going to become um, man and wife," and and when we become man and wife, like we, we're going to have secrets, and 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 I think she also says something about it being forever, and so there's this interesting interplay in that scene, um, and I thought it was a and we, hopefully we'll uh, talk more about this scene because I think it's really amazingly shot and, and acted scene and there's a lot of really interesting um, things and it uh, have to do with the Marjorie Trell character and kind of introducing um, you know Tommen as a character but I think that in that line of kind of you know just both being in a moment of you know being something uh, being you know a you know, not knowing what they are, and then uh, having a sense of what they will become, and that sense of of both um, possibility uh, and uncertainty. I think that actually um, uh, tied together some of the other more clear kinds of transformation um, and becoming that were uh, happening throughout the uh, throughout the episode. Very cool. Very cool. Matt, let's jump to Matt. What are you? Hey. <laughs> hey. And so the thing about that is, <laughs> sorry. So yeah, so Matt, what was you, what was the moment for you that provided a gateway in the episode? Well, I mean, you let Ryan go ahead of me, and he stole mine. Oh well, steal it back. Say but something. It was, uh, it, was, it was actually for it was actually for different reasons than what Ryan said. So it's in, it's interesting for me to hear to hear this episode described as being about transformations or being about different kinds of of. Um, of becoming, and I, I'll have to kind of think back through it and and think of that. But um, the idea of uh, the idea of that conversation, and especially the line "our little secret," um, ha- highlighted for me the the uh, the number of secret conversations that happen in in this episode, and and uh, is secret in the sense of being. Um, hidden and also secret in the sense of the 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 Latin like secretus meaning withdrawn uh, like uh, pulled uh, taken apart right and so the the number of times when someone pulls someone aside and says hey uh, let's have a conversation over here starting I mean starting with with Grey Worm and um, Miss Sanday I'm saying that right like at the beginning, they're having sort of a secret conversation. Uh, they march into Marine, and um, and uh, Barristan says to Daenerys, "Like, listen, like, let me let me give you a little bit of information about governing." You know, uh, after she's after she hath loosed her faithful lightning, and with woe and death hath scored, um, and you know, does her sort of white savior march through up the up the great pyramids of Marine built by slave labor. Um, uh, like the conversation between Bronn and Jamie uh, when their bromance kind of comes to comes to fruition, um, the uh, the uh, conversation about um, highborn sea words, right? That Locke has with with Jon Snow, the uh, Marjorie and and Tommen. Um, by the way, Natalie Dormer, thirty two, uh, Dean Charles Chapman, sixteen, and he's supposed to be twelve, right? Well, in the books, he's he's a lot younger. I don't think they can play him that young in the TV series. Certainly not um, for long. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Pounce, Sir Pounce, come talk to me. He likes the um, pussy cats. There it is. We didn't make it as far as I thought we were going to make it. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sexual yeah. Tyrannosaurus. Anyways. Metal <laughs> Dermer, 32. Dean Charles Chapman, 16. Uh, to which I can only say, nice. <laughs> well, here, let, me, let me add. Let me add that, so secret, oh, secrets. Oh, and oh, secrets yes. and withdrawn conversations. Um, and, and what I think that goes to, though we can like develop this over the, over the course of the recap, what I think that goes to is... Um, uh, is a division between public and private and like policing the division between public and private, what we show to the world versus what we know for ourselves between us 
um, and that that uh, that dichotomy seems to be um, uh, uh, seems to be operating here. So yeah, uh, and and the, the aspect I like to add. So for me, this part of why this episode kind of confused me a little bit is it started with a very on the nose scene that explained to you some specific sort of thematic things about what's happening. Uh, which is the scene between Grey Worm and Masande, which doesn't have the same sort of fun characteristic of the Sir Pounce scene. Uh, but for me, the moment where Grey, where Masande was like, what were you before you were an Unsullied? And Grey Worm says, well, I was nothing, right? And it's like, that's not true, right? So I was sort of counting as we were going through the beginning of the episode, and I lost track of it about two-thirds of the way through because I think they stopped doing this. But almost every conversation that happened in the first spread of the episode was one character telling the other character about an issue of personal history. An issue of person, and a lot of these were secret conversations, but it's also something that I either I know from experience or something that's true about, something which is true about what I'm going to do in the future based on my past, right? It's like, and, and I think that this has something to do, if you think about the title of it as Oathkeeper, right? Um, you know, the oaths, the, the promises, the duties really, uh, emerge from the past, emerge, as Locke says, from your, you know, the highborn sea words that are around you and sort of the context in which you're you're brought up. I mean, we see this definitely with, you see his name is Carl, Shana? Is his name Carl? Uh, yeah, I think it was, right? Because that, that's hilarious. He's also, by the way, the effete non-Charlie Day scientist from Pacific Rim. <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> But Carl talking about, you know, like, oh, I was a murderer, and I had all these bad bad things, and no, everyone was afraid of me, right? Um, and then this is sort of implied why you should why you should fear me now. Braun saying, you should trust me because your brother trusted me, and I talked this way to your brother, and that's the reason why you should trust me. You know, Tyrion and Jaime arguing over, like, well, would I have done that thing to you in the past? Well, would you have done that thing to me in the past? Well, what does this mean about our relationship going forward, right? Um, and Lady Oleana, of course, being like, I was real good. I was the sackmeister. Uh, I, I, I sacked that guy like Lawrence Taylor, you know, boom, right there, right in the kisser. Um, but the idea that duties emerge from your history, uh, right, and, and which has a really interesting kind of twist at the end, uh, which goes both ways, right, which is that if the, you know, sort of big coldy, I go and call him the big bad, but the big cold, that is the Night's King, right, he is a character that's full of history. Now, we don't know this in the show because the show has left out a lot of the kind of musing about history and whatnot, but he's a character who has a ton of history and is expected to behave in certain ways because of things that have happened to him in the past. But this baby wasn't born a White Walker. Right, the baby, the baby is like Grey Worm, right? The baby gets erased and, and starts over. And then the question is like, okay, are you like the Night's King or are you like the baby? Like Grey Worm is like the baby, right? Because when he becomes the Unsullied, he, re, he, he becomes anew, right? And then there's the question of Jamie and Brienne and can Jamie get a fresh start, you know, the day after he raped his sister? Can he like start over, you know, turn over a new leaf, you know, go to the gym or something? Um, well, whatever. Yeah, we don't want you to get into that right now. But yeah, you see, like, so for me, that was the part of the episode that really stood out was the, was the obligations and behaviors that are built out of the histories you have with people. And it did definitely strike me that as you're talking about in particular, the secrecy, the shared secrets, but I'm not quite positive how it all fits together. Does that, does that ring any bells for anybody? Any of that stuff? Sure. I mean, the, the idea of the, the child being the father of the man in a sense, and like the, the, uh, the the idea of your future actions as being the fulfillment of it, of the oath of your the oath of your past and and the sort of uh, complicating the the like psychologically simplistic methods of a lot of TV narrative uh, that I I joke about as being kind of the 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 fourth act conversation where the detective says yeah when I was uh, when I was young, I saw cops and they were cool and I always wanted to become a cop. The, or, the kind of the origin story, the origin story myth, right? Like Grey Worm is sort of a character without an origin story or he claims not to have an origin story, you know? Yeah. Quick, quick shout out to Michael T. Ford who's watching us live and, and tweeting at us. Uh, he, I think he won a bet that Shane Amalowski was going to make the innuendo first, which is a good bet to make. Uh, but please, no gambling. Unless we don't hear, I'm shocked, shocked to find there's gambling happening in this establishment. Well, here you're winning, sir. Thank you. Anyway, uh, continue, continue. Just want to give a shout out to Michael. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I guess we can just, uh, we can just, um, if you want to tweet at us at Overthinking It, we can reply live on the, 
on the air if you have questions or or stuff like that. We're viral and social and innovative. Ben, <laughs> to you. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I like I like periodically throwing it to Ben because he's so much more courteous than the rest of us, and he just, <laughs> just waits his turn. He's Wait, can I interrupt? Go. I'm just gonna interrupt. <laughs> I'll just say my I, I like the scene with uh, Marguerite as well, but the best part of that scene by far was the fact that they took one more chance to remind us that Joffrey is the worst <laughs> by having him apparently threaten Sir Pounce's life. So like, he's dead, he's buried, he's in the ground, but we still remember, oh yeah, I hate that guy. <laughs> that guy's a jerk. In the worst way possible, too. Oh, yeah. like, not only I'm going to kill your cat, but I'm going to kill your cat and Titus Andronicus you with him. Right. <laughs> oh, man. I guess, yeah, the history there, right? I mean, jo- Joffrey's history looms over a lot of the people. And then now that people can, are talking in secret, they can share what they think about Joffrey's history. It's interesting to think about uh, the the secret the way that people's impressions are being made uh, and people are being influenced by secret conversations in this episode versus the like gold gilded bronze statue of Joffrey with the crossbow over the dead direwolf right and the sort of big presence of sort of public narrative and Lady Oleana talking about the royal wedding is something that's really important. It's going to influence the way that people think and how they behave, right? It's interesting to see the secret influences, the private influences versus the very public influences that we saw in previous And those are actually sort of gendered, right? Um, sorry, Ryan. Those are sort of gendered masculine and feminine, right? Like the, the, the feminine realm is the realm of the secret influence and of the you know, of the like, you know, climbing to the bedchamber and stuff like that. And also Varys, who's associated with with being a eunuch and sort of having his his masculine bits uh, sliced, they cut me root and stem, uh, which is a phrase that haunts me in in <laughs> my dreams. Um, that, right, like being the master of whispers and sort of a, a, uh, a, a user of this kind of soft power. Um, so there's an interesting, you know, gen- it's not like, it's not like uh, Olenna, the Queen of Thorns, is like drinking out of a skull, is mm. my point. Though, oh, yeah, but what about Littlefinger? We, we did get Sorry, the Heather. interesting reveal early that Lady Oleana is the, the poisoner of Joffrey. Like, I feel like in the books, it takes, I don't even remember if it's in the same book that you find out for sure that that's what happened, but they left what, only an episode or two for that mystery to hang, which, which I thought was an interesting choice. So, Ben, in my notes, what I wrote was, um, I wonder if that has to do with the Internet, right? I wonder if that's a response, because they know they can't keep that under wraps for, for very long. Right. Uh, it, you know? it, it seems to be a larger trend of them showing just more in general in the show, because they ha- don't ha- they're not limited by the POV characters, so, like, they can show us Ice Mordor. They can show us a conversation between Oleana and Marguerite that probably existed in the book, but we just don't have the point of view character. And I, I don't know if that's to compensate for the fact that we don't get their internal lives, so we get a little bit more of the external world uh, to kind of build that out. Let's talk to Ryan, who was raising his hand like a million times. So you guys all say Ice Mordor all the time. <laughs> uh, I, for me, it was the Fortress of Solitude. Go for it, Ryan. <laughs> um, no, I, I, had, I had, and this is Shana said this too. Um, that you know, when before Matt jumped in with the um, the the kind of gendered uh, nature of the of the use of kind of secrecy and soft power, um, I the, the example that I wanted to bring bring up of kind of operating from the shadows was Littlefinger, who kind of is an interesting case here because on the one hand he like like Varys, you know works uh, in secret, breaks his oath when it's convenient, um, you know, and, and you know, also his current power play is, you know, marrying uh, Liza, Liza Aaron. Um, but at the same time, I think what's one thing that's interesting um, about Littlefinger that we actually see Olana do as well, but Olana's way more subtle, is that, you know, Littlefinger can rarely... Like even though Littlefinger operates in the secrets, there's always a moment where he wants to step out from the shadows and say, "Nope, it was me all along." <laughs> <laughs> um, and Olana, it's really interesting actually comparing um, the uh, the scene of um, Littlefinger with Sansa, where he really is just relishing, you know, breaking it down and then you know saying, "Well, like um, I want everything." 
Um, and you know, and then he becomes the mayor of Baltimore. Um, and uh, and uh, and then in in you know, in contrast, um, Olana just communicates this only through like really just like eye contact and like prolonged beats of like you know. I think she says something to the effect of, well, do you really think I would have let you marry that monster? And and allows kind of um, uh, Marjorie to kind of connect the dots. And so I think that on the one hand, um, you know, the little finger as operating in secrets on the one hand challenges the kind of gendered nature of the use of secrecy. But then even then the, this micro difference between those two scenes and, and how they like reveal and break that secrecy, I think it then also goes back to Matt's point of how there are differences in uh, gender differences in the use of this form of power. You can also talk about the slaves, though, in that very early scene at the beginning of the episode, um, where Grey Worm and the rest sort of uh, secret into the city, uh, you know, in these sewers, uh, you kind of expect to see some sort of turtle gang down there. But, you know, uh, having this uh, very whispery conversation um, that ultimately leads to a revolt, right? Um, now you could say that maybe it's gendered in the sense of, I, I don't know, these slaves like the uh, Grey Worm uh, and his, uh, I don't know, ilk, uh, they are cut as well, like uh, Varys. But I don't know that the slaves in Marine were. And also, is it really fair to compare uh, someone who's been castrated to a woman? But, you know, that beside, uh, it, I'm not sure how gendered this uh, issue is. You know, there are different kinds of secrets, of course. There's a type of secret that leads to a marriage, like in Littlefinger's case, or in uh, the uh, Lady Olena's uh, backstory, where she's talking about how she, you know, has snuck into uh, someone's room and just boned him, and that's the, you do what you have to do, right? So you don't have to marry an ugly guy. Um, so, but on the other hand, secrets also lead to stabbing slave owners in the back in the streets, which I guess you can code as more masculine. So I'm not sure it's necessarily a gendered thing, but you can convince me otherwise. Well, it's hard to talk about oath-keeping, right, and this, the, this episode and gender without talking about Jamie and Brienne. And the relationship between Jamie and Brienne and what Jamie is asking Brienne to do in this episode. Now, when I think, when Matt is talking about this thing being gendered, uh, I, I definitely think it, it's not that it corresponds necessarily to male and female characters. Sure. Uh, it, because uh, there's a lot of subversion of that, right? Uh, certainly in this case, so what, what Jamie does, right? Jamie, Jamie his, his arc here, his sort of decision here is that he has decided that he values the pledge that he made in the past to Catelyn Stark more than what Cersei is currently asking him to do. He's decided that of these two things that he's been asked to do, either to find Sansa and kill her or find Sansa and get her home, he's going to go with the pre promise he made previously. But he's not going to be able to do it himself. He can't do it himself for whatever reason, right, because of his position, because of where he is, or more just because of his relationship with kind of these kinds of actions, right? Is this something that is really capable of? Um, but the idea that he entrusts Brienne with his sword to go out and do the thing that, that he's not going to do, but but not sword. He doesn't say, you know, do this because I can't. He's, he's saying, he says that by her, he's doing this to fill that blank page in his King's, in his Kingsguard book, right? The idea, Jamie seems to feel that Brienne going out and doing this good deed, this oath-keeping deed, is going to reflect well on him. That it's something that is is an extension of his agency to have her do this, right? Uh, and, and that that it, it improves upon him in some way. Now, from the masculine feminine perspective, he's the man and she's the woman, but they have the same haircut, so it's hard to tell, right? And because uh, that's deliberate. Um, and and then she's the one doing the masculine thing, which is you know going out in the world with the sword, and he's the one doing the feminine thing, which is kind of like staying at home and minding the house, right? Um, but I, I, obviously that's kind of surface level because Brienne is like this, you know, man-woman, this like masculine woman, right? Um, I mean, what, what do you guys think about the Jamie and Brienne dynamic? We only get one scene with them, I think, or two scenes with them in this episode, but they're the name of the episode, right? And it's kind of a heart of what's a lot of what's going on here. The, the, I think that they did not know, I, and I've seen this on the internet. This isn't an original idea, but I, I kind of co-sign it. Um, I, they didn't know what they were 
doing when they messed up the scene in Baylor Sept with the the Jamie Cersei rape scene because so much so much of what's happening now depends on your sympathy for for Jamie right like depends on you thinking that he's a good guy you know or that that he's sort of tragically misunderstood or that he's he's caught in this thing and and it just seems like it seems like a lot of that is is gone. Like I suppose not that that people can't have good things about them and also do terrible things, but we're talking about an hour long entertainment, right? Where you need to kind of reduce the characters a little bit to get a handle on them, especially when there are so many of them. And like uh, and and like you know the 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 the, 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 the factor is still pretty high on on this one. For me, anyway, and and I don't know, sort of can't look at him in 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 quite the same way, uh, quite the same way again. I you know I don't know. Um, their 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 relationship, uh, right? So is is sort of tainted is is sort of tainted by that for me. Hmm. What about the rest of you? What do you what do y'all think? Ben, what do you think, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> so I I mean I think the interesting. Uh, part about that that was the first scene where he's reading out his own little history book um, you know recounting his his be- there and after he was called the, and there and after known as the Kingslayer um, and then shortly after that uh, kind of in the same uh, rhythm the, the same beats is the, oh, the idea of being an oath keeper so he, he's both a Kingslayer and an oath keeper um, and I, I just found that interesting that he, he's he's always trying to get out from this shadow of an event that everybody kind of blames him for, even though everybody ostensibly thinks that that king was supposed to be killed. But he's, there's still just something kind of tainted about him that he can never quite get um, get around. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. I mean, it's it's made all the more so now that right, right. because of the choice that they made in the show. Um, but he's never really even. In, I mean, it's easy to forget that he paralyzed Bran too. Right. right. And that's a very problematic event in both the show and the books, partially because in the show he does it with such a devil-may-care attitude. Like he, doesn't, he seems like totally fine with it, and he doesn't even seem like it was a difficult choice. And that doesn't really seem to mesh with the wrestling with himself that we see happening later, although, of course, people do change over time in dramas, and that's the idea, right? Um, and it is and I, feel, I feel like there's something interesting about keeping your oath through an agent, like exclusively through an agent, just like having an obligation and just kind of like securitizing it, giving it to somebody else and sending them out in the world. And then presumably that's that's it. That's his obligation with respect to his oath is, okay, I sent Brienne to go do it. I mean, that's, in the way. that's that's really interesting. Ben, you're the lawyer, so so you can fill this in. But, but um, there are certain kinds of liability that can't be contracted away in in real life right like if i have to shovel the sidewalk in front of my house and i hire someone to do it and they don't and someone slips and falls and hits their head they they still sue me cuz it's my responsibility that the that the sidewalk is 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 clear of ice right so the idea of that there being oaths that you have to keep yourself and oaths that that can be kept by proxy uh as it were, especially when last last um, uh, the last episode seemed to be about relationships of agency uh, or custodial relationships is an interesting uh, is an interesting thing. No, no, I think that isn't. I mean, because it, in the you know the contract context, it'd be if I have a contract with you to shovel your snow, sure I can hire somebody to do it for me. But if they get sick and don't show up, you're coming after me, not him, for the damages. You know, I can't just get rid of that obligation by saying, oh, well, I sent some other guy to do it. So it's just kind of strange, and particularly in an oath context where there's this idea of kind of a, a both a, it, it's a moral obligation more than it is a financial obligation. If if you swear an oath to somebody and you die in the process, then that's kind of like you doing your most, you know, that at that point you've, you've fulfilled your oath. But if you can't just go send somebody else and hope they'll take care of it and fulfill your oath. 
I think um, we could tie this back to what we were saying before about the theme of transformation. It's very interesting to me how, you know, Jamie is basically turning Brienne almost into himself, uh, giving her his sword, his armor, as you said before, Pete, his haircut, although he didn't give it to her, but, you know, it's very similar. Um, and then you can compare that to, you know, maybe Bran uh, taking his power or his consciousness and putting it into a wolf, or um, the White Walkers taking their being and putting it into babies. Um, and sort of, the question I have is, you know, are they uh, sort of merging into one being, one person? Is it one consciousness going into another and taking the other person over? Like, is this Jamie sort of taking over Brienne by giving her his duty? So now she doesn't have her own sort of will. She has to do what he says. She has to basically be him because he can't be himself anymore now that he lacks his hand. Um, or is, I don't know, is this like some sort of meshing of personalities? Um, it, I would like to see how this becoming is sort of uh, coming along for all of these different characters. Thoughts? It makes me think of Jon Snow and the Night's Watch. And it makes, it makes me think of how when you join the Night's Watch, you're supposed to leave behind the life that you had before and everything, all your properties and any possibility of having children and everything that you cared about previously. And all you care about is the you know being the shield that guards the realms of men, right? And so there's an interesting moment in Jon Snow's speech, where he's convincing people to go to Craster's Keep, where in the first beat he says, okay, you know, we have to go to Craster's Keep because these guys have information that's going to compromise our position. If Mance finds out before we do, uh, before we get to them, then that's, that's doom for us, and that's bad. And then, but Jon Snow can't leave well enough alone, right? Because then he adds, and also, Jared Mormont was our dad, and... <laughs> We are out for vengeance. We are, we are, we are marked. They're marked for death. You know, like there's a fire down below, and they're going to be under siege. And any number of Steven Seagal titles that could be appropriate in this situation, which is all of them. Um, but it's, it's. Uh, you'll be under siege too. But uh, that's some dark territory. But um, the point is <laughs> that uh, you know that, that the Night's Watch leaves behind family. I mean, yes, your your brothers are the people who are there, but it's important to the Night's Watch that you not take on these sorts of personal vendettas. And you do you do the thing that defends the wall, and that's the whole reason why they didn't ride out to Moletown, or not to Moletown, but to the villages and the cottages, and like the little kid who was, you know, I'm going to eat your parents, ah, you know, like that whole thing. Um, why they didn't save those people is because they're the Night's Watch, and they can't, right? Like they're not allowed to. They have to protect the wall. And here, John is sort of like kind of adding a little bit of his previous self to this, a little bit of his sense of, of righteousness, which is, of course, you know, what he was tested with with the wildlings and what he kind of, like, discovered with Egret and all that other stuff. Um, it's I think this is, this is interesting because this highlights a theme that I actually saw with Jamie as well, and it's actually been a theme that's, you know, came up with Jamie in last season as well of what you do when you have conflicting obligations or obligations that conflict um, in kind of almost different moral logics, right? So that you have a, a, a one kind of claim on you to do something right um, that is because of an oath that you swore and, and you should, you know, and almost you're behaving under a, you know, a Kantian, um, you know, a maxim of you keep your oaths and, and that, that, you know, oath keeping is a, is a, a right way to, to live um, and is, is something that holds the world together. And then, you know, in Jamie, in the case, if I remember the story of his telling of why he killed the Mad King, well, that there was, you know, there's almost a utilitarian logic there of like, you know, that he had the wildfire set up and was going to burn, you know, King's Land to the ground, and so many innocent people were going to die, and so there's this, you know, it's kind of the, um, you know, the the King's Landing trolley problem kind of situation, <laughs> um, and uh, and and I think that, you know, I, and I see that. Um, Again, I think what's interesting in the the scene with uh, Brienne is that you know agency is one kind of so way of, of a solution to this um, conflicting um, obligations of being Lord Commanders of the King's Guard and having sworn a previous oath. So there's a kind of almost a you know technological, a kind of moral technology or an institutional technology that's solving this moral dilemma. Um, and then I think with respect to to John, it's 
kind of John's yeah, at this point is kind of creating problems for himself because as you say he um, you know on the one hand there is a the actually the um, you know the oath of the both the, like the kind of oath and the strategic or utilitarian um, logic of um, you know we uh, you know we, we 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 need to do what's best for the night's watch, which is like both preserving our lives and our and maintaining our obligation to and our oath to to protect um, Westeros, uh, like are aligned. But then he kind of pulls on in a different kind of like social role based logic and a different kind of you know behaving as a good son and um, and and again he innovates in a way that's not necessarily, you know, we'll see how it, how it plays out. Um, but again, he kind of uses this logic to create a moral justification, um, that, um, you know, complicates, um, the, uh, he adds a conflicting moral claim where it doesn't need to be. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting kind of connection between, um, those, those two, um, scenes. I mean, what you're talking about is, uh, is, is very much part of Meister Eamon's, really, in my mind, the closest thing the series has to a coherent statement of purpose, which is, or single statement of purpose, which is when Meister Eamon gives his big speech about love and duty. Yep. And, uh, and that happens back in season one, I think. Yeah, and, he's, and he says, uh, you know, the, the gods made us for love, and that's our great tragedy, right? Yep. There's gonna, what is, you know, what is duty next to the touch of a woman? Uh, and and uh, there comes a time in everyone's life where they have to choose between love and duty. And and the way that you talk about different kind of moral axes that are not on a continuum, they operate in different directions and they conflict. And people having to choose not just you know what way to which which fork in the road to take, but whether they're walking on the road or whether they're like riding on the skateboard track or whether they're like digging under the ground. Just like what conveyance they're even doing, how are they determining the way forward? Right, and uh, and I mean, and I think that um, things like Jamie wanting to save the lives of the peoples of King, people of King's Landing, or like John wanting, in this case, to go out to get justice for J.R. Mormont, uh, or Daenerys even, uh, you know, the breaker of chains, the one who really rules from her heart because she doesn't, she 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 despises uh, these obligations that people have that that she sees as un, you know, unworthy of them, right, and so she's the uh, you know, because because of also because of her relationship with her brother and the way that he controlled her and the way that he was supposed to control her because of her birth and position and kind of the freedom that she experienced with her whole Khaleesi awakening. Um, you know, she's she's big on the sort of heart thing um, rather than the duty thing, um, and uh, and it's interesting to see sort of the conflicts conflicts there. But it, it touches almost every aspect of the story, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder what Daenerys um, if. I was thinking of the scene with Sir Barristan at the beginning where he was talking about uh, answering uh, injustice with mercy, which to me seems like uh, what would be answering with the heart, right? Like, oh, I have mercy for you. Um, I'm turning the other cheek. I'm, you know, like Jesus. Um, But then when Daenerys says, no, you answer injustice with justice, it's not necessarily like a duty, like she made a particular vow to a particular person, but it does have that ring of a vow, um, like injustice and, ju- and justice. They go together naturally. You cannot separate them. You cannot bring your heart into this. Now, uh, that may or may not be the right decision for her to make, but I don't know if it's as simple as saying that she, um, you know, she works from the heart or not. Although, uh, I guess you could connect her to that uh, horse's heart that she ate in the first season, but that is different. That is a different type of heart. <laughs> well, <laughs> Barristan, Sir Barristan is the duty dude. Like, he gives up everything for duty. And I think when he's talking about mercy, one of the things to consider is the mercy that was visited upon him when he was captured at the Trident, right, fighting for Rhaegar Targaryen. And, uh, and he was spared, and he was enlisted. Not only was he spared, but he was given his old job back because he followed his duty by protecting the king. He followed his oaths. Even though it was the king on the other side, right, they recognized the wisdom of retaining this guy's services because he clearly operates from a place of duty, and in that sense, he's a useful guy to have around and he'll fulfill his obligations. So when, when Barrison is saying you should have mercy for people, I think he's more saying you should, you should, sort of resp- you should also respect the social constructions that cause people to act the way that they do and not necessarily hold them culpable 
for situations that they get into that inform what they do. Like, like don't hold them accountable for the story of their past that motivates them to go forward. Because if you have a certain story of your past, you have to act in this way. Like, you don't have a choice. Right? And, he, and he describes, as the precursor to arguing for mercy, he emphasizes that even the the masters are her people are her subjects now like they all fall within her um kingdom now and so she can't just treat them like enemies in a war she can't just kill them you know a, a day ago killing them was one thing because they were enemies in the, this war she was fighting but now they are her people and they're her responsibility and so her duties in with respect to mercy might be different um, and I, I disagree somewhat about the idea of Danny ruling from her heart. I think she sees herself as kind of above the traditional norms of duty and morality and that kind of the philos- she sees herself as being above the philosophical fray. Like she's just gonna cut cut through all of that to do what she knows is right, regardless of you know what the the philosophers say. Well, yeah. I th- and I think that that's actually I, uh, for me that actually resonates with you know some of what we've talked about as the kind of you know colonial elements and the kind of you know mighty whitey elements of um, of Daenerys's uh, character that you know and this I think is reacting to some of what um, Pete and I think Shana were saying that like rather than um, asking you know what is what is a you know how how to understand what even asking what justice might be in this context or how do you think about justice um in this context where this is where what marine's history has been uh daenerys says yep there like i like the implication is she knows what justice is there is a justice and she's going to uh and she's going to just lay it down um and rather than you know it being something that is um you know socially constructed and and uh, and kind of historically um, constructed, and so that it's you know she is like she basically she'd like just put on her like UN peacekeeper blue helmet and come in and just say whoa there's some there's some major human rights violations going on here here we go justice 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 yeah let's gonna we're gonna we're gonna uh, I believe the quote from Star Starcraft would be I'm gonna drop the hammer and dispense some indiscriminate justice <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> to blow up some zerg what about Pod- what about sexual tyrannosaur Podrick Payne we should talk about him because he's the best character on the show. That's not true, but he's pretty awesome. What do you well, guys- I've been shipping him and Brienne for a long time, so I'm oh. happy. Um, oh, good. I'm glad you anticipated that one. Matt's nodding, and he took himself off mute, so that means he must have something to say. Uh, well, I mean, I the thing I noticed about that is how elegantly it it dispenses with the problem of needing to get him uh, out of King's Landing so he can't testify against Tyrion, right? So that it's a it's a nice bit of it's a nice bit of conniving and of of uh, uh, of plotting on the part of of. Jamie uh, in cahoots with Tyrion or acting on Tyrion's behalf here in this um, in this uh, and you know I suppose those knights on the King's Road get awfully lonely and girl could do worse than sexual Tyrannosaurus Potter Payne. <laughs> he's he's so good the prostitutes pay him. <laughs> it's true, but also he has he has Tyrion's axe from the Battle of the Blackwater, which is interesting, right? He has that. Um, I believe she, I believe when we were doing a roll call. For who was going to participate in this uh, in this podcast in this recap? Shayna said, "And my axe," uh, as uh, as the um, as her way of, of inviting herself onto the podcast. We'll show I was referring to that axe, not any other axe from any other fantasy. You know, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. It's just interesting that that Podrick is going forth upon this venture and is taking this mem- memory of Tyrion's heroism with him. Um, Podrick is a richer character than he is in the books, at least as far as I can tell. I don't know if the other book readers feel the same, but I feel a lot more connected to Podrick Payne now than I did when I was reading the books. And his connection to Tyrion in particular is a lot more informed, at least it seems to me. Um, you know, Because, of course, he goes off with, he's going to go off with Brienne too in the books, but at that point it's like, oh, well, is he more related to Illyn Payne? He's more of a presence, right? Because he's the guy who chopped off Ned Stark's head, but they never really mentioned the relationship between the two of them, is is Patrick like related to Illyn Payne by blood? Are they are they like father and son or something? Or does anyone know? You I'm googling curious. Google as fast as you can. Google as fast as you can. Uh, I think I mean we're we're kind of getting we're kind of getting through the episode. I'm looking at my notes here to see if there's anything obvious that we didn't really cover. I mean, we talked about Brienne and Jamie. We've talked about John. Well, none of you thought that the uh, that that uh, 
Marjorie in in uh, Tommen's bedroom was kind of a stranger danger moment, right? Where it's like, don't tell your parents that I came to see you, uh, right? And all that stuff. Nobody just speculated as to what Tommen was going to do after she left the room. I think it was pretty <laughs> don't clear. Think what, yeah, it's pretty clear what Tommen was going to do after she left the room. <laughs> he's going to polish his sword. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's going to do his widow's, widow's whale, right? He was going to keep some oaths. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but let's let's say well, what what are some final uh, as much as we want to make sure we go over the length of the actual episode in these recaps. I think I'll we're, talk double, we're doubling it, right? So we're at the halfway mark of this recap. Bucket to the left. Make sure that you get, grab some before you get out there for the second half. Uh, ben, you're going to be playing goalie. What? <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about um, – we, we didn't talk a lot about the um, the mutineers at Craster's, um, and I I would like to – I mean, you know, and we talked a little bit about the horrendousness um, of that, um, but I, I'm, I'm just wondering if there were any other kind of reactions, uh, either just from the scene itself or from those of you who've read the books of kind of how this is depicted um, and and. You know, just the whether how this connects to some of the uh, the, the themes that we've been discussing, and or some of the the kind of narrative arcs going forward. Because as the episode goes on, that really um, takes the weight of the focus in the you know the 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 last kind of quarter of the episode. Um, we haven't talked about it a lot, so I, I didn't want to um, close without kind of um, at least uh, going through it a little bit more. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess I know Matt. You were talk. You were read, noted. I read your notes, and you had a couple of thoughts about the. Uh, about well, I I, your... I was thinking about what Shana said last week, and and about the this sort of depravity as a mark of authenticity, uh, thing. And and I I finally we didn't say the word depravity, but I finally settled on it as I was as I was writing. I think that's the that's the word for the for the kind of thing that. Uh, uh, that passes, or that that at least Shana's Shana's contention uh, was last week that that that's the mark of authenticity. Like the worse it gets, the more like real. No, no, to it be is. fair, to be fair, Shana was saying that that's what people seem to think. People seem to there's a lot of people who seem to think that the more depraved something gets, the realer it gets. I don't think Shana herself really bought into that idea. Andrew. Look, I think I know what Shana thinks better than. <laughs> No, no, Matt, you have to good understand. Point, good point. Shana is going to let, let's explain here. Ben, what do you think about what Shana thinks? <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So right. So so the point, and Shana, obviously jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, but the point is that there is a claim made by certain people in the I think we have to ask Shana what she thinks. I don't think we can just gloss over that without actually giving Shana. A I, okay, just before you do that, I wanna I wanna throw it to Ryan for a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, here's the thing. Shana, I, actually... I grant you the ability to say what you think. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you, Ryan. God. I was actually warging into Matt's head, so everything that came out of his mouth is actually what I was thinking. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, that's what's made me. I can't do it. Wait, now Matt's stuck in a trap. Mm -hmm. Matt's stuck in a trap. <laughs> oh wow, guys, you want? Do you want? Like, I thought Wolf Cam was one of the best parts of this episode. So, like, we can do like Matt Cam, where I carry the baby Matt cam, the house. Yeah. Oh, baby. baby. Um, but but uh, I mean, I here, what, Shana, what, I think you should make your point. But the the what I wanted to say, ancillary to it, was that. Um, uh, this seems this seems to be kind of playing into that logic a little bit by by getting just getting just so bad, you know. I don't know drinking drinking out of human skulls and and raping the wives of Craster to death on the floor is um, and I mean just like just the bruise makeup that was on that was on the face of the the woman who was sitting to the to the right. Uh, I forget the the name of the head mutineer. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, do, do you feel like your prophecy has come true, Shana? I think it's been true for, you know, since episode one, right? <laughs> I mean, they they even added, which wasn't in the books, um, when the mutineers captured Bran and the rest of them, oh, of course we have to threaten Mira with rape. She's one of the only char you know, female characters who haven't been threatened with rape or actually <laughs> raped. So let's, you know, just check that box. So... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right, Matt, about what I was saying last week. So I don't have anything else to say. So the thing, I wrote, the thing I wrote about this in my notes was like, does it have to be this bad? And and I guess the the 
the less normative way of asking that question is what, why is it this bad? Um, why is the depravity this bad at, at Craster's? Why is the rejection of civility so uh, so intense, right? Um, I mean, I wonder if there's kind of an arms race of depravity. I wonder if they kind of have to outdo Craster because that was pretty depraved to begin with, right? Like, um, I don't know. Uh, looks like you're you're about to pipe up, Ryan. Well, I think that there – I mean it, it actually like circles back to some of the other themes that we've been discussing about kind of – this is almost a converse of if the episode is called Oathkeeper, this is the inverse of the Oathbreakers, right? And so this is what happens, you know, when eight strangers, like, stop being polite and start <laughs> breaking oaths. Um, and, and, no, and, I mean, and on the one hand, there is this, like, um, you know, problematic side of that being – I mean, realness, right? That there is a kind of um, – it shows something about the uh, like the the showrunner's kind of theory of human nature, right? That um, like without the oaths, um, it's 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 this it, it is it's utter depravity. Um, and and so I think that there is something like that that the oaths that we have and the these specific rules and roles and these histories are what you know tether us to kind of. Um, even the the minimum standards of of like the the moderately bad horrible bad behavior as opposed to the unimaginably horrible bad behavior that um, that uh, is the state of human nature um, in this again in this kind of um, what that that kind of real um, de depravity kind of uh, mode now correct me if I'm wrong but none of this stuff happens in the books right like they find like Summer is around Carl in the books and like track and sees them and and that happens. But like I don't think they captured. No, Summer, they never tie Hodor to like stick. Okay, good because I was I was writing in my notes. It was like I don't remember this Craster stuff from from yeah. the novels, but it's been a couple of years. So yeah, no, my girlfriend was like, no, I'm like this doesn't happen at all. And she's like, well, what happens? I was like, they walk through the woods. They just keep walking through the woods. See what happens. <laughs> and that's and like that. Seriously, that takes like three books. Like we're already two books ahead of the rest of the story at this point. <laughs> Nothing happens to them. And uh, and and I think that that the the re one of the reasons why it's so depraved, and one of the reasons why it has this like skull and the terribleness is that it's it's an anime filler arc at this point, right? It's like we need to create artificial stakes that will energize a temporary but meaningless plot that will slow down this part of the story so that other parts of the story can catch up. They couldn't uh, have done a bleach episode, really. Of a bleach episode, like. Oh, well, not a bleach, but that too. But uh, I meant, you know, uh, the episode where they all have a beach party, or so they go to the hot springs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they could have hot springs. Oh no, didn't um, they, they do, did John go to the hot springs? Hot springs. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that was pretty great. Yeah, John at the hot springs is canon. So is Naruto at the hot springs. That wasn't a filler arc. <laughs> The okay. bounce, though. The, I, I was thinking of Bleach. I was thinking of the nonsense vampires in the Bleach filler arc, where it's just like, by the way, the world is full of vampires. <laughs> not part of the rest of the story, but you're going to have to look at their coats. They're so stylish. Everybody in this show is so stylish. Speaking of stylish coats, I don't want to end the episode without talking about Jamie Lannister's coat that he was wearing when he was sending Bran off. Oh, that's that what means. It's all it's you. Not, I mean, there's nothing more there than it's a it's a really like contemporary looking coat. Um, uh, the uh, the what's that? What's that jacket? Margiela? Yeah, no, exactly. It's either Margiela or Theory. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and it's it's it, it really like looks like something that is could be on a like on a runway. Um, and it's it, it was just an interesting. It really um, it really like was. I don't know. For me, eye-catchingly interesting. It wasn't like, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't um, like odd or out of place, but it just was something that that kind of connected. It was just an unusual kind of uh, fashion statement uh, for for that world. Um, so I thought uh, it was just kind of interesting. And uh, once we were talking about fancy jackets, I had to just jam that in. Ben, what do you think about fancy jackets? I. I'd buy one, you know, if it's available at the Gap, if the Game of Thrones line is, is going to be at the Gap this fall. Yeah, Mad Men <laughs> at, what was it, Banana Republic? Republic? No, I'm in. They got to monetize. <laughs> yes, hands of gold are always cold. Hashtag Westeros Normcore. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, man. Okay. So, all right. So, let, here's the real, because now we have gone f- soundly over the length of the episode, so we did what we can't do. This is what happens when you break your oaths to only go for the length of the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's, Pete, there's, I, there's, Pete, I think Shana thinks it's time to wrap. Wait, wait, really? I, I think Shana would like to keep talking. I mean, what do you think? Do I you think, think you have to ask uh, Ben Hold on, Shana. Ryan. <laughs> Let's get a consensus on what I think. Uh, wait, uh, let me just warg, warg into Shana's mind. And... Okay, okay. No. I, I think what they all said. Oh, we're the worst. We're the best and the worst. I guess that's sort of the song of ice and fire in a nutshell. All right, so so anything else for the good of the order before we uh, we, we send this one north of the wall to the green castle of evil 80s makeup? I, get- I just feel compelled to point out that uh, in your reference to Under Siege, uh, you missed the opportunity to point out that in Under Siege, Steven Seagal is a cook with a particular set of combat skills who fights terrorists. Jon Snow is a steward with a particular set of combat skills. He fights terrorists. So we're ready to do this crossover. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Egret comes out of the cake, right? But, <laughs> everybody who's 14 or 15 or whatever when that movie came out knows what I'm talking about. Um, that's what it, right, Matt? Yeah, and spoilers for Under Siege. <laughs> spoilers for Under Siege. Uh, Gary Busey is the guy in the dress. <laughs> All right, so on that note, having kept our oath to reference Gary Busey at least once in this episode, we'd like to thank you for having used us as the second screen for you and joining us for this Game of Thrones recap. On this recap channel, this podcast channel, if you're listening on the podcast, you will get community recaps, you'll get Game of Thrones recaps. We've got a couple questions about the lack of Mad Men recaps. The, the, the listenership really wasn't there last season. There just weren't enough Overthinking it, fans who wanted us to talk about Mad Men. So we, we had to cancel, which is unfortunate because the season is really interesting. So watch the site and we'll get some written content out about it over the course of the next few weeks. Uh, but yeah, but you'll get community, you'll get this, you know, you'll, you'll get uh, all the best shows that will be coming out in the next six months. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, get our Eurovision coverage. We're one of the only American media outlets that just totally throws ourselves into Eurovision for some godforsaken reason and talks all about the biggest song competition, uh, that side of the Atlantic Ocean, or this side of the um, Bering Strait. I know it's the other side. It doesn't matter. The point is that it's awesome, and, we're, and you're awesome, and that's why we want you on our website. So please come find the home of all these things by visiting us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve.